Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm fine. I'm a little sick. I was going to say, you sound a little sick. Yeah, you know, I get sick an awful lot, and I don't understand why. I think I may be unhealthy. Are you up up for doing a show today? Oh, of course. Okay. I'm not some guy that cancels a podcast just because he's feeling a little sick. No, like not I like, do. Not like some people no, I know. No, no. No, you cancel a, po- a podcast if one of your eyelashes tickles your eyeball. No, but if I if I sound legitimately bronchial, I will. I mm. will definitely cancel. Oh, bronchial! Do I sound bronchial? Yes, you sound yes. congested, bronchial. Yes. I think listen because I think maybe it's because you have such confidence. I hope you have confidence in your voice, mm. uh, and you know that people that you have a good enough voice that even when sick, your voice is still good. Yeah, well, it's the Kathleen Turner effect. Yeah, they're Demi Moore. As you get more and more sick, you sound more and more sultry. <laughs> uh, every time, every time uh, I would hear Kathleen Turner, I would say, "God, if only I could have a voice that was so oof, gritty." Yeah. When my, when my daughter got her tonsils out, she spoke. You know, she was just a little kid, but she was a little kid with a Kathleen Turner voice for about a, a month, That's and it adorable. was adorable. I didn't want it to go away. No, no. Whenever my little girl gets a cold or something and she talks like that. Yeah. Oh, it's the cutest thing. I think that what it is, is that, uh, you know, when I was, oh no, I just, I can hear myself go down this road. I don't want to do it. I don't want to say that when I was gluten free, I didn't get sick. I don't want to say that. Because that's no. that goes. You'll get a, a lot whole, of email from about goes that. Down a whole crazy road. I don't want to think about. Right, but it's true. Yeah. All right. But uh, but no, I'm confident. <laughs> the thing is, Dan, that I'm you know, my podcasting philosophy is that I'm here to you know to be the real, to be the real story, the real truth of the of the absurdity of life, and part of that is is that you show up sick, you show up injured, you walk it off. <laughs> you do your thing you do your job and people say wow you know sometimes i get sick i've been sick before right and i've and i had to go to work you know that whole business of like oh don't go to work if you're sick well not everybody can afford to do that you can't just be like well sorry i'm sick and when i get sick i get sick for a week you sound like a different guy you sound like maybe you're from <clears throat> new england or something no oh, yeah yeah more like more like a cop than ever more like a cop than ever yeah i like it I like it. They're yeah. absolutely, absolutely being sick does improve some aspects of my personality. In some ways, it's in some ways it makes it a lot worse. I'm I'm one of those people that does not want to be around other people when he's sick. I don't like yeah. being cared for. No, nope, me too. Same, same. I hate it. Yeah, stop caring for me. I don't mind Go if away. they bring food, but I don't want to talk to anyone or like, how are you feeling? Don't ask how I'm feeling. I feel like crap. Yeah, leave the food at the outside. When you the see door. me showered, dressed, all cleaned up, and at work and happy and walking around and yeah, talking to people, then then you'll know I'm fine. Until That's you right. see that, I feel terrible. That's right. I don't. I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want to like. Meh. I don't want to entertain people when I'm sick. But but there is a kind of like, I don't know, a sort of doped up cleverness. Yeah. To being sick, where you're sort of, you know, you're just a little bit. A little washy, but wise. I don't. I don't, I don't know. I don't. I can't quite describe it. But it, but it, you know, I kind of bumble around the house. 
there's not anybody here, right? I'm not performing for anybody, but I am kind of performing like a cartoon bear. Uh-huh. You know, I kind of fumble around and and I talk to myself. And I mean, but I how imagine, is this different from just a regular Thursday? Well, it's just it, it's a little bit more. I think I'm I'm doing it for God, right? Like I I feel like I'm I'm trying to amuse God because God has delivered unto me this poison. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, you want to see what it's like? You, I mean, I, I'm basically like a like a like a doped bear, like a bear that's had a a a, a, a tranquilizer gun, and I'm just like, whoops, a daisy. But I feel like if I could be just a little bit more like that in real life, a little bit just like, oh boy, what's this over here? Well, looks like a whoops block. I don't know. It's just it's fun. That aspect of it is fun. I'm going to try and bring some of that today, too. All right, good. Doped bear. Doped bear. (coughs) Well, thank goodness I have a cough button here. So are you, uh, is this an upper respiratory? Is it a cold? Is it something more? uh, They all are. Uh, Everything that, I mean, if I were to get, when I scrape my knee Mm -hmm. skateboarding, it turns into an upper respiratory problem. (laughs) I've always felt like my lungs were one of my weak organs you know like the uh, astrologist can tell you that oh watch out for lung lung problems really lung problems i'm just saying if if i was your astrologist i might have warned you i feel like my lungs and my knees were two things that i came from the factory well yeah but you're so tall i mean with somebody who who is that height you never have it's impossible for someone as tall as you to not have some kind of knee thing happening but the but but the the constant colds. My whole but life, also, you've got colds. a little girl. You've got a little girl in going to school, and that's yeah. the same. Same with us. Like my son now seems he's eight. It seems like he's gotten every cold you can get now. Well, so sure. even when my little girl comes home, who's five now, aren't they're the same age? Our daughters. She comes home from school. She'll have a cold. He won't get it now. Finally, right? She's getting all of them now. Yeah. She just needs little, to cycle through them all and then ever, all of us will be spared. Little plague incubators. Yes. Well, the the uh, thing about me is I don't feel, I have not been sick in a long time. It doesn't seem to me. But when I tell people, oh, I'm sick. They're like, oh, you get sick a lot, John. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, hear that re- all the time. The reply is like, you're always sick. Yeah. I'm like, well, no, I'm not. I just, it just turns out that I'm sick every time you and I want to do something. <laughs> every six months when you and I figure it out that we're going to get together and do something, it turns out I'm sick. That doesn't mean I'm always sick. And then the, then the crazy ones are the ones that are like, oh, I'm sick. And then the next day I'm feeling better. I'm like, that never happens to me. If I feel sick, it's a whole long, it's going to be a long week. Well, they don't have kids. That's the other thing you have to say. Anytime- it has nothing to do with kids, though, Dan, because mm-hmm. I've always been like this. I was like this when I was in the absolute prime of my health, really? which, which was sort of never. <clears throat> what a, I mean, you do not look at me and think, there's a sickly child. But I always had some little, bleh, some little cold that just was on my, like a monkey on my back. Mm. My, my daughter doesn't get sick. No. She just walks through life, you know, chewing on pencil lead falling downstairs but she doesn't ever get a cold and, and uh, neither does her mother and i don't that's I don't great know what it is well it's wonderful but like i can't tell whether it was that when i was a little kid they didn't stick my face down in the dirt as much as they should have uh-huh. 
but it was the 70s. Of course they did. They just throw you out in the dirt in the 70s. Yeah. But I made a point. When my daughter was born, I took her out and I put her on, I took her to the beach. And in Washington, the beach is not like a sandy beach. It's like a gravelly, mm. seaweed-covered, sketchy beach. I took her out and I just put her face down on the beach. And she came up with a mouthful of seaweed and sand and everybody was yelling at me. What are you doing? Yeah. I was like, she's not going to be sick because I'm putting her face in the dirt everywhere we go. And I did. Everywhere we went, I'd put her right down, right down baby face, right in the dirt. Now, and I, so now Are I feel police around or did anyone? No, 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 because it's recognized. It's globally recognized as good fatherhood to improve your child's immune system by inoculating them against spores and mm. other spores. I think it's mostly spores. Yeah. <sighs> Man, they didn't do that to me, I guess. They they swaddled me and protected me and, and you know, wet nursed me. And now I can't defend myself. How, what an indignity is it going to be, Dan, if when the next global pandemic comes, some bird flu or pig flu or cat flu. Yeah. What an indignity if I am one of the victims. After all of the precautions I've taken. Yeah. The prepping. Can you imagine? I'm sitting there with my small bag packed and my bungee cords and my canned tuna. And then I get a cold and die. That, I mean, that would be, that would be the irony of it. If that's what happened. That's awful. That's awful. I have to do some, I, well, I don't know what to do. Yeah. What can you do? Hmm. Like you avoid contact with other humans. Uh huh. It's the first sign of a pandemic. We played in Toronto in the midst of the bird flu scare. Everybody was walking around with paper masks. I oh, felt yeah, confident. I, I felt confident then because I was protected by cigarettes, Dan. Mm. When you're when you're smoking cigarettes, you feel like they are they you feel like they are a protective bubble. Nothing can get, they are already so bad for you that nothing else can survive that environment. Oh, right. You're actually creating like a hostile germ environment just in your body. Yeah. The bird flu comes in and then, and then it's like, ha ha ha. And then all of a sudden it's surrounded by the smoke of 25 Winstons. And it's like, I'm dying. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't think that that would make you more susceptible. It's more like a shield. Well, that's what I thought at the time, but I don't smoke now. So I'm just a pink pudgy little lung baby well you talk about pudgy but i'm you know when we talked about the you got the new fitbit and you're walking around the alley Mm -hmm. did you ever figure out what that thing was or did you have to go to alaska uh what what thing the thing that you weren't sure what the animal was in the alley you said you were gonna go back and check the animal in the alley yeah i saw an animal in an alley yeah and it surprised you this was just a week ago that you told me this you had gone out walking at night at 1030 at night and you walked because you were trying to do the Fitbit, trying to do the the thing. And you went and, and you walked all the way to the grocery store and you didn't have your wallet. This was a whole episode. Were you there for that one? Yes, yes, yes. I remember the animal. The thing is, I've, I've since run into another animal in an alley. So, okay. I, But I haven't talked to you about that animal. Right. And I was very confused uh, how you could have known. How I knew, it. right? Oh, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I'm. Uh, not there for everything. 
No, that was, I, I, I turned the corner the other day and there was an animal that was the size of a possum, but it was moving really fast and possums don't move fast. And, and it was completely in shadow. So I was like, that's either the biggest rat I ever saw. It's too big. It can't be a rat. It's too big. It's the size of a cat, a fat cat. It's like an armadillo, but moving really fast, and we don't have armadillos. Okay. So I don't know what's going on around here. I, I feel like that alley that, that you're talking about from the last episode. Yeah, you said like that, you were going to go back and do some recon. Yeah, but no, I went to Alaska instead. And I, and I exercised my Fitbit. I made my Fitbit proud okay. because I climbed up. Uh, I went to Whittier and then climbed up the backside to, to, I climbed up Portage Pass to Portage Glacier. And that's not a, that's, I mean, it's not a super hard climb, but mm. for someone who is as out of shape as I am, the terrible thing about Alaska is everybody's outdoorsy, even people that you don't think are outdoorsy at all. And I'm climbing up this Portage Pass and I'm, you know, I'm huffing and I'm puffing and in my head, I'm thinking, oh God, this is, I'm not going to make it, you know, I'm going to have to sit on this rock and think about this choice that I made to come up here. I'm about, I'm not even halfway up the side of the mountain and I'm already just, I'm winded. My feet are slipping. I mean, I, I chose to do it in, in vans, which is bad hiking shoe. Yeah. I'm sitting on the side of this hill, just like, Oh God, I can't, I don't think I'm going to make it. And then here comes trooping up a family of Alaskans. The, the first guy I see is pulling on a vape as he's walking. And then here they come six or seven people all talking, carrying kids in their arms, little kids running around too. They're all, you know, they're like, they're drinking four loco. Like they are not in any kind of hiking gear, parachute pants and high top tennis shoes. And, and they just plow on by blah, 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 pulling on their vapes. And I'm like, my fucking God, I'm getting lapped by this crowd. Like I'm a, I'm an outdoors kind of guy (laughs) I'm in the wrong shoes. And I'm a little, I'm a little bit slow right now, but come on. And then, you know, here comes like granddad in a rascal scooter or whatever. Like the, there's nothing that keeps these people. If you saw them, you would not say that they had ever been outdoors, but it's Alaska. And so everybody's outside. And just the most unlikely, you meet the most unlikely people up uh, on the trail. And so, oh, I hoisted myself up and was just like, here we go. I got to, I got to get past these people. I can't, I can't suffer this indignity. And then, of course, you know, you remember that, oh, right, you're going to get a second wind. You're going to get a fourth wind. What was I doing? I was giving up. I was giving up before my second wind kicked in Mm. because it had been so long since I'd tried to summit even a little nothing little saddle but it was good man my fitbit was just singing my praise really it was like you're amazing kept it kept uh it kept vibrating and sending me little little um mario brothers coins (laughs) it was it was uh it was good it was good to get back to the great land and you were just there for uh like a reunion of some kind 
Yeah, I went to my 30th reunion. Wow. But I also went to the Alaska State Fair, which is the state fair that I grew up between two states. You know, I grew up in Washington and Alaska somewhat, somewhat equally. I went through first through fourth grade, kindergarten through fourth grade in Seattle, and fifth through 12th in Alaska, but a lot of back and forth. And so the Washington State Fair was my first fair, but the Alaska State Fair was really the fair, you know, the fair that you go to when you're a teenager, that really matters too, right? There's the kid fair, but then that whole business of being a teenager there and and the sun starts going down and you're at the arcade, you know that feeling, yeah, right? Do you go yeah. to state fairs? Or when the sun is starting to go down and all of a sudden the whole area around the rides starts to feel a little sketchier because yeah. it's just a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> you're like, whoa, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. This is getting, they're all necking with each other. And, and uh, this is going to be a teenage scene. I got to get out of here. But when you're a teenager, the state fairs, you know, and the Alaska State Fair was the, that was where I really sowed my teenage oats. Mm. You know, you go there and you're not, you're not looking at a giant cabbage. You're not trying to pet the sheep at the petting zoo. No way. No, you're there to go on rides, eat, eat garbage food and flirt with girls. Did you, you, you went to a, some kind of Pennsylvania State Fair? Well, we, I was, by the time that I was in the teenage years, uh, I was in Florida, so I got the Florida fairs, which were very, which were sketchy any time of day. Sure. All times of day. Uh, so, but so did you, did I went you have to like the up, world's largest orange, or what was the... Like, what would be the draw? Like, what would bring bring the people out? Yeah, yeah. I just, I the way Florida is, everyone's so transient there and just borderline homeless that... A fair just automatic just it wouldn't matter. You'd have a Ferris wheel pop up, and that was the draw. That there was something someone had. And the thing about people in Florida is they couldn't tell that the fair hadn't been there all year round because everything in Florida is built in sort of a shanty town, temporary uh-huh. way, so that it can either be removed, boxed up, and removed, or you know how like when uh um George Jetson lands and he gets out of his car and he pushes a button and it folds up into the little briefcase and just walks in yep that's pretty much everything in florida except it's not cool like that it's just it's meant to be broken down and packed onto the back of a pickup truck loaded up and uh tarp put over it and driven to the next town that's fascinating that yeah. comports with my experience of florida yeah no it's 100 percent right and or or they build it in a way because like well the hurricane's just going to take it down anyway so why build it to last so right. all they had to do was erect some kind of Ferris wheel, and that in and of itself, that would be that would be the draw. We sure, used to have, and it's flat, so you can see them for miles. Yeah, yeah. okay, because it's the only thing that's above your sightline. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But in high school, we used to have like they would do one at the school, and then there was this other thing in uh, in Sunrise uh, that was called the 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 I think it was, it was well it was called the Swap Shop, but. Uh-huh. I like in, it already. Yeah. The, in addition to the swap shop, they had like the, the swap shop had, it was very weird. Uh, I'm going to see if I can find a link to it uh, because this, so many of my childhood memories took place at the swap shop. And so w- the, in order to imagine what I'm talking about here, the swap shop was, I'm going to, I'm going to guess it was about a hundred acres 
big. It was permanent. It was in Sunrise, which is just north of Fort Lauderdale. And it imagine like it's a on the one hand, it's a, like a gigantic flea market where you have thousands of vendors outside selling crap, everything. And then they've got an inside section, which is like air conditioned and the stores in there are sort of more, I hate to use the word permanent for anything in Florida, but they're more permanent in that they're, they're like little storefronts kind of. Like, are they selling hot tubs and mattresses or are they selling other kinds of swappy junk? Other kinds of swappy junk. Like, like if you imagine that you're in an international airport uh, and, yeah. and they'll often have sort of like very expensive perfume stores and other things like that. That's kind of what they're going for. But they're doing it in a very, very Florida kind of a way so that instead of being posh and nice, it's incredibly seedy and cheap and it all smells bad. And everything you just get the impression that everything that's being sold there is has been stolen Mm-hmm. And is being put up for sale, and the stores are probably a front anyway. And there's hundreds of these stores. And this is where, as an 11 year old boy, it's paradise because this is where I got, you know, like my first butterfly knife. And this is where you could get fireworks any time of year. And they had a really great arcade, which had Yara Kung Fu in it. And like, it was just, it was insane. But then it was also weird as they had amusement park rides there. They had a farmer's market there. They had a drive-in movie theater there. They had a circus performing with an elephant in it in the middle of all of this. Whoa. And then you could walk outside and you could buy like five pairs of $2 sunglasses and like I mean, candy. This sounds fantastic. It sounds like, the yeah, right. Five or six different things that happened in other places. <laughs> it was all in but one all place. together in one place. Now they have a car museum there, I've heard. Yeah, like that, that fits in just perfectly. I, the thing I don't understand is like the guys that sell old watches, military ribbons. Oh, they had all this. Swords. They had right, all I'm into this. Those. Guitars, old guitars, everything. But, I, but so often you go into those places and there are people selling hot tubs. And That's, I bet you I, there were. And it was just off my radar as like a 12 year old. At the Alaska State Fair or the Washington State Fair, each, both of those fairs have probably, I would have to say, four different, completely separate organizations who have the biggest shops of anybody. I mean, huge, because they're selling hot tubs, right? Those are big. (laughs) And they, they truck out 20 demonstration hot tubs each, some of them as big as like small stationary swimming pools like their most exaggerated hot tubs with light shows and fountains and stuff they set them all up they fill half of them with water so you can see that they hold water i guess (laughs) but like there there are four of these companies meaning suggesting to me that the 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 people that go to state fairs even if they don't know it are in the market for a hot tub. <laughs> this is it's probably true. You know, you don't go to the state fair thinking this, yep, get to state fairs here. Now we're going to upgrade our hot tub. But you get there and it's so enticing to yeah. see all those hot tubs. And, and it's the, it's the Rolex effect, right? I mean, if you travel overseas, everywhere you go, there's a Rolex store. 
And Rolexes are freaking expensive. Yeah. Like, there's no cheap Rolex. Uh Uh-uh. And if if there were only Rolex stores in Geneva, Paris, London, and New York, and you walked by them and you're like, whoa, there's the Rolex store. Mm. They sell watches for $5,000. It would it, it would sort of be one thing, right? But there are Rolex stores everywhere, so much so that, it, they, that just by their very presence, they normalize the idea of owning a Rolex. Like every, you get <laughs> off an airplane and there's, you, you'll be able to buy a Rolex within 100 feet of where you right. stay. Because that's normal for whatever the town is you're going to go visit. Yeah, every little town in Germany, every little town in France, you know, like they all have a little Rolex store. And so over the course of time of my travels, I have started to think, well, owning a Rolex is normal. Otherwise, they couldn't have Rolex stores everywhere. Who the hell is buying these $5,000 watches? But I went through a period where I felt like, well, I guess, even though you can buy a uh, you can buy a Swatch for $50. Yeah. Even though your phone is a clock, owning a Rolex is something that normal people do. They roll into these Rolex stores and they're like, hmm, my good man, let me have the, let me have the submariner model. Mm. Only $7,500. And so I was like, maybe I should get a Rolex. Yeah. And I thought about it a lot. Then I was like, maybe I'll get a vintage Rolex. Well, they're not any cheaper. And I think it's the same with hot tub stores at the at the state fair. You go there and you're like, there are so many hot tubs at this state fair. This must be, you're, you know, if I'm going to get one, which I probably am now, this is probably where you get a good deal on them. Yeah. Maybe I can't afford to pass it up. <laughs> right. You can't. You can't afford not to get it. Right. Yeah. Because for those guys, for the for the hot tub guys, I mean, schlepping all those it's like a it's like a full semi truck probably just to get the just to get all that crapola there, and then a week to set it up, to, and then they staff it with like five people, and who knows where their hot tub store is? Their like brick and mortar one. They got to have employees there yeah, in case yeah. somebody walks in, and. uh it's got to be worth it for these people. They can't just do all that and then sell two hot tubs the whole time. They've yeah. got to be selling hot tubs like hotcakes. <laughs> Maybe if they just sell one, it's worth the whole thing, you know? I don't know. I mean, one great hot tub is I what, 8000 the, the markup on a hot tub, it's, it's got to be insane. A hot tub yeah. probably costs 200 bucks. Yeah, that's probably you true. Know, from China or whatever. Well, everything now, everything is from China, Dan. Oh, John, you would have loved the swap shop. You still would love it. Everything you could want is they have knock, they they would have Rolexes there. They're all knockoffs. They had a fake, you know, like fake uh, pur- purses. Women would go and get the fake, fake purses there. Any oh, yeah. kind of junk that you want. It's, it's just like how the internet, if you're interested in like, subsisting only on drinking chicken fat and eating celery sticks there's a internet community for you it was like this but just people would bring their vans and park them behind a a folding table and start selling the stuff that had been in their garage for years yeah oh here here i mean that stuff that kind of thing where you walk around and you're like wait a minute is that i mean in the old days yeah you could 
you roll up on some guy and he's like, I got all these Macintosh receivers here that <laughs> right. I, from my dad's old stereo store. You're like, what? Yes. But now, see, I make a point to go to these kind of things. And the last few times that I've been overseas, uh, including like down in the Caribbean, but also when I was in Africa a year ago or two years ago, whatever that was. If I'm walking around, I see a little like bazaar. I got to dive in because of the, this possibility that you're going to find something, uh, you know, some plane went down in World War II and, and this guy's grandfather scavenged it and then now he's he found it in the closet and now he's selling it at a swap meet. But sadly, even in Ethiopia, the swap meets are all now full of garbage made in China. Like the worst style. Mm of new uh, garbage material. And I walked through this bazaar in Ethiopia, which was enormous and never saw a single thing that was made locally. Never found a single thing that was older than 16 hours. It was just, uh, it was just one after another sort of little containers and, and bad clothes and, and makeup and stuff like you're saying the the uh, duty free area except right, right except made really cheaply and poorly and <laughs> and it and it made me fully understand like what how the Chinese economy actually works you know we think like oh they're making all of our refrigerators and stuff selling it to us at markup but no they're just churning out they're churning out so much material that's selling for pennies but it's such a huge wave of it that it ends up, you know, it ends up being worth billions of dollars. But it's been a real disappointment to me the last few years that you go into a bazaar in a foreign country and there's nothing left that's interesting. The the um, the wave of of junk has kind of drowned all the all the little tidbits. I don't know. David Reese and I went on a on a on a journey in Jamaica. David said, "I don't want to go to any of the tourist stuff." And you know, we, we would typically we would get off the cruise boat and we'd go to some, we'd go on some fucked up mission, right? We're going to go get goat curry or something. But this year, he said, "I want to go. I want to go buy old reggae vinyl. I want to find a man who's got like twelve inches of great." 70s reggae and I'm going to buy all these vinyls and I was like that's messed up yeah, yeah let's go do that and we went all over uh, this town and Ochos Rio or something and uh, couldn't you know everywhere we went we are like you know you guys got any record stores or music stores and people would point us somewhere and we'd go there and it was just there was DJ equipment all made in China, but no one had vinyls. And we finally, finally, after an entire day of, uh, of searching this town, we found a guy who had a shop that was selling mostly junk, but we said, you know, you got any vinyls? And he was like, yeah, I think so. And he went down in the basement and he pulled out this box of, of, uh, 12 inches that were covered with mud because the, because there'd been a flood. And we sat and washed them off with Windex 
And then he had a turntable and we put them on and played them. And David ended up buying 10 or 12 of these records. And, uh, and you know, stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else. This crazy reggae records. But now you have to, you really have to make that kind of commitment. All we're going to do today is we're going to find these vinyls. We're not going to go to the top of the church tower. We're not going to go jet skiing. We're not going to do any of the fun stuff that we're ostensibly here to do because we've been on seven cruises now and we're not interested in that. We're going to dedicate this day to this one task. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you're if you on vacation and you can do that, I, I find those to be very interesting vacations where you wake up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to find a sword cane. And I will not rest until I've found a sword cane. So I've been talking about sword canes recently. I was talking to Merlin about sword cane. <laughs> what were you saying to Merlin about a sword cane? I was I was saying that I thought that would be a good, like something good for him to have. Merlin have a sword cane. Well, yeah, because he was talking about how he, he's having different problems and he's aging and things like that and how he would need, might need a cane. And he was saying, I was saying that for him, I would imagine he would use sort of like the Walgreens aluminum style cane with the gray plastic handle. And he said, yeah, I would put a tennis ball on it. But I was thinking for me, I would want a cane with a sword in it. You know, it'd be more of a style, a style statement. Well, if I was going to get one, the danger of a knife of any kind, the danger of a bladed weapon is that the person who is the person that you draw it on is going to know how to use it better than you. And what you don't want to do is draw a blade on someone who's going to take it away from you right. and then point it at you. Yes. You've, to- you've actually given me this. This is good advice. You've given me this yeah. before. Yeah. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people that are like, I'm carrying a knife, but there's every chance that the, that the bad guy is going to say, Hmm, nice knife. And then disarm you of it. And with, and Merlin and a sword cane, I don't know. I, I'm afraid that I'm just, I'm afraid of that scene. I'm afraid of Merlin ha- pulling a sword cane half out. And by the time it's all the way out, it's in someone else's hands. Mm. I think the advantage of a sword cane is that you never pull it out, but it gives you that little teeny extra feeling of, um, you don't want it to make you too bold. Oh, right. Right. Like, like, when it when it snows here in Seattle, which it rarely does, it'll snow and then there'll be snow on the ground for a couple of days. And you'll drive to town and the ditches are full of four-wheel drive SUVs. And all these people that bought those four-wheel drive SUVs, which now is everybody, right? You can't, there's SUVs everywhere. They're all four-wheel drive. Um that the the four wheel drive gives them extra confidence that they do not deserve. Right. And so they, they're like, I'm in four wheel drive and they huckledy buck their way through the snowstorm and then they lose control of their vehicle because they're idiots. And then their four wheel drive just, it's not helping them at all. They spin out and they're in the ditch and they're confused. How did I get here? Meanwhile, like if you know how to drive in snow, you can drive a 1974 Chrysler Imperial in snow and not spin out. Yeah. Because you just know what you're doing, and that's the danger of a of carrying a knife or a sword cane is it makes you feel like ha ha can't stop me, and then you get 
you get in extra trouble more than you more than you would have otherwise. But I think it is good to if it gives you that little boost of confidence, like if I'm ever tied up, if somebody grabs me and ties me up with a rope and says, I'll be back in 15 minutes to be dastardly to you. Mm. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you sitting in this chair in this big room with your cane. With your cane, poor disabled person. Right. You can think, mm-hmm. little did you know, my cane is also a sword. Mm-hmm. It's like a last ditch situation. If there's, a, if there's an active shooter type of situation in your workplace and you are cowering in a room with, with five or six other employees and you hear the active shooter outside the door and he, he barrels in the door, then yes, good that you have a sword cane. You have an advantage now over anyone who doesn't have a sword cane. But if it's, if it's empowering you to like, I don't know, walk down the street like a big rooster, that's not a good plan. I, I desperately, I desperately want a, a collection of vintage sword canes, but they are extremely hard to find in America. They're illegal most places. I bet you could get one at the swap shop. I'm just saying. You can pick up some Chinese stars. I remember that I came back with some Chinese stars. My mom was like, where did you get those? I was like, that place over there. I'm sure you you get a sword cane. Did you you sharpen the the throwing stars or Uh, did you just use them as they were? I was very disappointed to find out that they didn't come sharpened. Right. They were just these sort of blunt edges. And I remember I was sitting there with my friend. We were looking at these things and I'm like, these aren't going to go in in through anybody's skin, let alone you know, let alone through a shirt, and then in their, je- their jeans into their flesh. Is no, going to do anything. They wouldn't stick into a cork board. No, and I, we took them out and we started trying to throw them in, and they wouldn't even it's bouncing off trees. And so we did our best to sharpen. I think we had a file or something, but we didn't have like uh, access to a any kind of a real. Like what? Whatever you would use, like some kind of grinder or something. That's what you'd use. A grinder, a lathe. I don't think you'd use a lathe. A grinder. No. We didn't have that, so the, I was never able to sharpen them to the level that I felt they would have been effective for really killing. Right. Which yeah, they the never goal. got. They never got to the to the to the point where they were real killing stars. Right, and I couldn't figure it out, and I had just assumed that we were sharp, that they were sort of sold as like novelty items. Yeah. And that, that the real kind, which we would see in those catalogs, did you ever order those t- catalogs? Oh, uh, when I was 11 and 12, I don't think I was more into anything than I was into these catalogs that had, they were like ninja catalogs. So they had, they got your tabby boots, they had Chinese throwing stars, they had all kinds of katanas in there. All kinds of like nunchucks, fake, you know, practice nunchucks that were just sort of foam, foam covered. And I would just sit there and look at all that. And then they, they would have the things that would fit on your shoes that would let you climb up, scale a wall. Sure, the little points. Yeah. We would like to say thank you very much to Mac Weldon, John Roderick's underwear of choice. John likes the silver underwear. What does that mean? That's right. They make underwear that integrates a special silver fabric this is real mac weldon they make really well-designed 
underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, the best and the most comfortable that you will ever wear. They believe in smart design, they believe in premium fabrics, and they make it incredibly easy to shop on their site. You just go to MacWeldon.com, and everything's right there. And because they don't make 100 million different things, it's super easy. You go in, you say, you know what, I want one of these, two of these, three of these, done. You're out. They ship them to you, and you know what? If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. They will still refund you, no questions asked. So it's a great way, a really low-risk way to go and find out, do I like this stuff? The answer is going to be yes. Their product's naturally antimicrobial. That means they eliminate odor. So this stuff is great to wear just to work, just around. You wear it out on a fancy date. You work out in this stuff because they want you to be comfortable. And they put that first. So again, it's, it's Mack Weldon underwear, socks, and shirts that look good and that perform well. Perfect for everyday life, whatever it is you're doing. Check it out at Mack Weldon. We're giving you 20% off if you use the promo code ROADWORK, one word. Mack, M-A-C-K, Weldon, MackWeldon.com. 20% off anything using that code ROADWORK. And like I said, if you don't like your first pair, you keep it. No questions asked. So go check them out. And we sure do appreciate the support of MacWeldon.com. Now, Dan, where do you think, because I remember the sort of Bruce Lee era where there were a lot of kids that were very interested in ninja stuff. Yeah, so into it. And for whatever reason, I never got into ninja stuff. It always seemed like a thing that that maybe other kids were into. Uh, You know, kids that also read comic books into ninja things. Mm-hmm. What was it that appealed to you about, I mean, I, I, wait a minute, that's a dumb question. I know what appealed to you about ninja stuff, but what do you think your gateway to it was? What was the, what was yeah. the, your martial arts gateway? I certainly grew up enjoying Bruce Lee and, and his movies, but there was a thing that was, this was again, this was in, in South Florida. I don't know if it was a, a national thing, but I'm sure that it was not. And that on the weekends, I vividly remember this being a Saturday afternoon and Sunday late at night kind of thing. And I was always staying up late that they would have, I forget what they used to call it. I think it was probably called like Kung Fu theater or something. So you had, they would show sometimes two or three of these movies back to back of, you know, just typical like fighting karate kung fu movies poorly dubbed fantastical you know people doing you know kicks that would you know whether they're sort of leaping across the the sky but these are so so much fun to watch i just i have these vivid memories of watching them and i think it, the interesting thing was it wasn't really my goal like i didn't have i wasn't thinking to myself oh i'm gonna be like these guys like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna learn martial arts and get good like them because I was well aware that it required far more time and devotion than I was capable of putting into it because like I had school and stuff like I was a regular kid right and like after school that that was for watching tv and sure you know, not the, ninja the, practice the trs 80 like I'm not gonna like try and become a ninja no but I loved watching the shows and these things were just I just so enjoyed them. I think that must have been 
the gateway because I'm thinking that if I had never watched these things, I probably would have it would never have really been in into my awareness. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I like a lot of cultural phenomena over the years. I think I just sort of watched it all go down. I could see why uh, I could see why it was appealing to other kids. You know, hey, yeah, choppity chop. But I, I was so focused on war movies and particularly World War II war movies, right? That I don't think there was any. There was no room for ninjas just, for you. There wasn't any room for ninjas. That's right. I couldn't. I mean, I watched Kung Fu, the yeah. TV show. Oh, I love that show. Well, that was a very good show, but he spent a lot of time being pacifistic. Right. It, it made for, a, as an adult, I think it, it makes for a wonderful show. But as a kid, I'm like, why does he ever do anything, really? Like one, you get one fight. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of the time, he's, uh, he's dealing with issues. Well, I had the same problem with Ultraman. I was obsessed with Ultraman, but you know, the fight only came in the last three minutes of the show. Now, what was Ultraman? You didn't watch Ultraman. I would have been sure you would have been into Ultraman. Ultraman, wow. Not only didn't I watch Ultraman, I've never heard of Ultraman. Real? No, 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 no. You know who Ultraman is. You're, you don't, you're not connecting the name with the, 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 the being of Ultraman. So Because I, I'm going to send you in, into your phone here. I'm pasting an image uh, if you have that handy. That's Ultraman. You've, you've, you've seen Ultraman. Oh, You've yeah, seen, I have seen Ultraman. Ultraman uh, was, for those who don't know what Ultraman is or was, this was a Japanese TV show that was made in the late 1960s. And it found its way, again, poorly dubbed, found its way to America in the, I would say, early to mid-70s. So mid mid-70s, this show would be on in the morning and I would watch this before school along with like Speed Racer. And <laughs> the, this show had a huge impact on me. It was a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful show because you had, but again, it was always about the Science Patrol who were these dorks that flew around in a ship. Science Patrol. The Science Patrol would try to, so typically this story went something like this. A terrible monster has arrived on Earth Usually it's hatching out of an egg. It's emerging from a spacecraft. It's coming from underground. It's coming out of the water. Maybe these right. things have been on Earth. A kaiju, I think, is what they would be called. And, and they are emerging from wherever they come from. And then they, they slowly start to approach uh, the city. Whatever this, is city. All a, uh, this is all a product of Japanese post-war yep. uh, nuclear anxiety. Exactly. And as they are slowly approaching the city, the science patrol would come out and they'd, they'd try some different things. Like they'd go, well, if we do this, we'll shoot a thing, we'll put a net on it, whatever. And not, nothing ever worked. Nothing ever worked. Now, on the science patrol, fortunately for Earth, was Hayata, who was, uh, and this is the part I was, I'm clear on it now, but as a kid, I was never really clear on it. But, uh, Hayata, I guess, was, he was either injured or near death or died or something like that. In, and somehow Ultraman, who is a being from another planet, 
I guess somehow was linked or connected to him in, in some way. And uh-huh. so that when Hayata would be in some kind of peril or the science patrol would be in peril or earth itself would need saving that he could, uh, raise his little, uh, what was this thing called? People who know what this is are going to have to send me emails, but he had this little, it was like a, it was like a little, uh, almost like a remote control. It was like a little handheld thing that he had a button on it and he would hold this thing up in the air and he would say, Shwatch. And Shwatch. He, yeah. And then uh, he would, I, it, I took it that he was transforming into Ultraman. But yeah. I, I've come to find out maybe he wasn't, maybe he was sort of being taken away and Ultraman was, was coming back. Whoa. Uh, it, in any case. Um, it, Almighty Isis. Yeah. So he would. Uh, Anyway, uh, Hayata would be there. He'd hit this button. This thing would transform him one way or another into Ultraman. And Ultraman would then come down and kick the monster's ass. Right. And inevitably, you know, he might, he might, there, there would be a bit of tension because the longer that he was on Earth, uh, he he couldn't exist under our sun something like that and so he had a light on his chest kind of like iron man has a a light he had a light which was a timer and uh it it would be blue right but then it it would it would eventually start to blink and this would represent that he was running out of energy I think it would go to red and then it would start blinking and then it would eventually if the timer went out uh, I think it would just go off or turn black. And they used to say, if his warning light turns black there, you know, they, that he would die. And so How do every, you save Ultraman if his warning light turns black? Well, he would, what would happen is he would have to uh, fly away. So he would fly away. And I guess this was like a reset for him so that he would, I guess he would go out of the behind the, I don't know where he went, wherever it was, he, he would reset him. He was away from the sun. He was fine. Then he would come back and fit. And, and meanwhile, then like the monster's like, all right, you know, like I got rid of that jerk and he'd start kicking some tanks and, you know, smashing some buildings. Then Ultraman would return and, and finish the deal. But Ultraman could be completely out of energy all the way to his light goes off. Just until, still- well, no, no, if it goes off, he's, he dies. And then oh, so Zoffy it never has actually to come went and, off. No, it did once. Ooh. And Zoffy, uh, came back and, uh, Carried him. Zoffy is like Ultraman's boss. And he fixed ev- comes and fixes everything. But that only happens so, once. So let me ask this. Did the Science Patrol ever actually solve any problem without I the don't, help of Ultraman? I don't think so. Oh, and it's, uh, by the way, it's called a beta capsule. That's the thing that he would hold up and say beta. It was the beta capsule. So it's one of those situations where you know Ultraman is going to come in at the end. So all of the narrative around the Science Patrol and everybody else trying to solve problems... It's just set up. It's set up. It's all set up. Yeah. Just like the whole Kung Fu show was set up for the one thing to happen. Wasn't there another movie which was like Kung Fu where he plays a blind, where he's a blind guy and he's mm. walking around with a blind guy and. Mm. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think you're conflating the fact that he was also, he moved like a blind guy. I'm sure David was 
David Carradine was blind in something. I I don't recall. But I do not, I did not ever gravitate toward uh, like Japanese culture as a young person. No, he was. I just looked it up. This is true. It's called Circle, Circle of Iron. 1978 martial arts fantasy film co-written by Bruce Lee who died before production. Hmm. Uh, David Carradine plays a blind flutist. Uh, (laughs) Sorry to to interrupt what you were saying with that, but I do remember, I do remember him (laughs) as a, as a blind, I think it's flautist flautist like a flauta. Uh, I'm not sure what a flauta is, but like a flautist. He flouts. Flautist. Well, flauta is essentially a taquito. Oh, right. No, I don't. Well, but see, look, now a flauta uh-huh. is a taquito, <laughs> but it looks like what? A flute. Yeah. So I think we've, we've, uh, we've come full circle here. <laughs> it's the circle, the circle of iron. <laughs> the circle of, the circle of flutes. <laughs> I do I, I I do feel like I missed something crucial some and I, it's not that I missed it like oh bummer I missed it but like I'm missing some component that where where I look at you know like the sort of products of Japanese culture the robots and the anime the little uh, sexy babies and the the um, monsters here to destroy the earth and, and just all of the ephemera and it, it never resonates with me. And I know it really does with other people and anime in particular, but like in some ways I'm a, uh, I, I have, I've tried many times to get into anime because I do like cartoon porn. Do you? Yeah. Like the, like, uh, you know, in this, in the eighties, there were a lot of, there was a lot of, well, it all started, I think, uh, when I would steal old playboy magazines or find old playboy magazines and, uh, and the cartoon, you know, the, the comic strips in playboy were all, um, cartoon born for, for lack of a better term, you know, they, they had narration. Um, but, uh, they were here. I'm googling. Yeah. Um. Like it really connected with me. Little Annie Fanny was the <laughs> was the strip that ran throughout the 70s. It was in every Playboy magazine, and it was it was multiple pages, three pages. And Little Annie Fanny was always getting into scrapes. She was always, you know, like always right, I'm looking at this artwork. I re- I remember this. Yeah, getting into scrapes where she didn't, you know, oopsie daisy. Yeah. Uh, all her clothes came off. Yeah. And it was kind of done in a in an Archie comic style, but but a Mad Magazine style, you know, and I was very, very addicted to Mad Magazine. And so, and Mad often went right up to the line of being kind of dirty um, without right up to the line without going over and little Annie Fanny started at the line and then (laughs) went considerably over. So I was, I was already primed for cartoonish 
uh, depictions of sex fun. And so, and then there was a lot of, there was a lot of that stuff in the eighties. Well, and, and the, the freak brothers were big influence on me. Uh, but then right about when we got up to Omaha, the sex cat, and then tipped over into anime, I really tried. I honestly did. I was like, I like this. I like cartoon uh, sex pictures. Come on, connect with me, anime. And it just never did. I could not, it just didn't, it didn't ring my bell. And I've always, you know, now that uh, throughout the last five to 10 years, nerd culture is ascendant. Like I, I continue to feel like anime might be a, might be a way in for me, but I just uh, it it just leaves me cold. And and then I think about it, and all the way back to the early seventies when there was all that Japanese stuff that was designed for kids. The exception being Speed Racer. I was very connected to Speed Racer. I was worried about Speed Racer all the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. But but sort of not not very much else. And I don't know, I don't know how to account for it, or I feel like I feel like it's uh, it's set me on a different course. I could have been on it. I could have been on a very different course if I had just found something in that iconography that that. Uh, I just that never was it. In. Was it that you you didn't really get to watch it that much, or when you did, you wouldn't like? Were your friends into it, or? Uh, yeah, my friends were into it. I feel like some of it might have been the bad dubbing. Mm. You know, the e- even Speed Racer, there was a lot of that. Hey, what are you doing here? Come. <laughs> yeah. And like, let's go. That I felt like was sort of beneath my dignity to to have people talking like that. Yeah. Like, well, come on. They don't have to shout everything could sometimes just talk, have normal conversations. Um, it's interesting, though, because I, I think Speed Racer, which I have watched a great deal since then with my son, who I could because I was trying to get him into it. He didn't doesn't really get into it. Yeah. But I there were that was just one of many. I mean, there were Star Blazers, Battle of the Planets, um, Space Pirate uh captain harlock yeah see i missed all of this and i see i see it on the internet people like people uh sharing memes yeah from their childhood like only 80s kids will get this or whatever and i look at it and i go yep you're absolutely right i have no idea what that is but then you know merlin or hodgman they'll throw these things at me like oh look it's spaceman patrol and yeah i don't i just i was uh I was divorced from it. And and honestly like it's uh it's it's part of like why I don't have don't have a, a real draw to Mexico or to Central America. Mm-hmm. Cuz I have a similar problem of not really being able to latch on to anything culturally there that speaks to me. You know, I kind of fumble around and I'm like something here is going to connect with me and I'm going to you know, it's going to resonate with me. And obviously I haven't done a super deep dive, right? But just at the surface level, culturally, I kind of don't, I don't grab on. Whereas, you know, for whatever reason in, 
the Czech Republic or whatever, I look around and everything connects with me. I don't understand why. But it does, it does exclude me somewhat because, because I feel like an outsider. Um, well, it's not too late to get into it. I think the princess on Battle of the Planets, she could, she could draw you right in. The thing, the thing she is, she was really hot. The princess on Battle of the Planet. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, what was her name? Princess. Uh, just print the print princess. That was it. Princess. I, princess. I don't. I don't think she was a princess. She was just called princess. Uh huh. Oh, like my daughter. Yep. Uh, I. I she had a great I'm, costume. She wore uh, like a pink mini dress with thigh high white boots. And arm length gloves, white gloves, and a cape. She was yeah. very, very, I just, I remember, I liked her way better than Trixie. Well, yeah, but see, the, again, I'm looking at her now. And, and, and I think another thing is, and this is part of why I didn't get into superhero comics, is that the exaggerated body shapes never connected with me either. Even, even... When I was just um, when I when it, when it should have right when you're that age where you're like boobs right boobs well she didn't have exaggerated boobs well but she's got she's definitely like you got to make sure when you look if you just Google her yeah. then then you're gonna see all the recent stuff of her and there's a lot of new stuff you've got to look at the original. Yeah, the original I mean, stuff—the way she was drawn back in nineteen, you know, sixty something. Now that I'm now that I'm here, Princess Battle of the Planets, I'm just going to put cosplay right in there. Oh yeah, no, you'll see some great, great because stuff that's there. that's really what I'm into. Yeah, I I think cosplay is amazing. I I, I go to comic cons and I'm not interested in anything except the the costumes that people put together. Yeah, I think everything else is a ruse. I think that's why everyone goes is to see that. Yeah, they should just have costume con. Why don't much, they, I think it is now. I think that's why what don't it is they do now. that? Costume con. That seems yeah. like a way, way better thing. There you go. Um Yeah, nope, nope. I'm I'm looking at them and and uh looking at all these things and I'm just not finding the uh not finding the gateway for me into that. Yeah. And I and I don't <clears throat> I don't feel like I'm going to at this point. No, it's and, probably but I don't think you're, you know, if you didn't watch it then and you're already where you're at, I think you're doing good. I don't think you need to worry. No, no, no. Like I'm you not, didn't miss, you didn't really miss it. You, you watched the like Sid and Marty Croft stuff. Oh yeah. Sigmund and Sea Monster and the. Of course. No, I'm not worried. I don't feel like I missed out like uh, the, uh, on some crucial aspect of my development. No, you didn't. You didn't. I only mean that I missed out on a thing where I could, uh, connect with other people mm. who are my age or a little younger where they're like, Oh, I love Goku. I'm like, great. That's great. I don't understand why. I mean, it's not like I don't know who Goku is. I just don't understand why you love him so much. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, I don't like those gaps. I don't like those gaps of understanding or of empathy 
between me and anybody else. You know, I'm always trying to figure out what's motivating people and I want to feel it with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why are you, why does this matter to you? Oh, I see now. I feel that with you. It doesn't matter that way to me, but I do see how it matters to you. But like that, that stuff, I just, I've never, I've never been able to, you know, I kind of, I, it, everybody that's like, oh, she's beautiful. I'm like, have you seen little Annie Fanny? Let me get you some 1970s playboys. Like that's a yeah, thing yeah. get excited about because, uh, but you know, little Annie Fanny is not a superhero. She doesn't, she doesn't have superpowers. She's not especially empowering actually. And maybe there's some of that. Maybe the, 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 the uh, Japanese superheroes are always so super, you know, I liked Akira. I have to say that was, I was going to actually, it's funny you said, I was going to ask you if you liked Akira because I thought that was one that would have really drawn you in. I did. This is blasphemy. I understand. I was not that into Akira. I didn't really, that was not my thing. Really? I, I, I mean, it was, it was cool at its time. It's I was all, I felt like, that was at the time period where I was very into Mecca and I felt that if it wasn't about Mecca, I'm out. What is Mecca? Okay. So you know how like in, uh, in, in, uh, like Robotech, for example. Yeah. I'm already lost. Okay. Uh, Mecca are the giant robots. Oh, oh, the big one. Yeah. But they're not transformers. Some transform that, but that's uh, not a requirement. Is it M E C A? Uh, I think it would be M E C H A. Uh huh. Okay. Oh yeah, I see. Oh, I but they're like war machines. M- many are war machines. Yeah. So what were the ones I did used to have one that was like the very tall, uh, chromy one with red that had a Statue of Liberty uh, style crown. Amazing. Uh, Amazinger, Amazinger, M. Uh, I'm maybe it's Ma- Mazinger, M A Z I N G E R, Mazinger, Mazinger. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's see here. Look. Except even those are more. There's a lot more going on with them. I had the proto version of those. <laughs> that was, yeah, like the 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 doll that I had did not have articulated knees, okay. and barely barely moved at the hips. Um, like, uh, and, and he was a good, he was a good foil for some of my other toys, but you know, honestly, primarily I played with army men. Did you play with army men? I did have army men. They weren't like high on my list of, of things to play with. Cause I wasn't into like the war, that kind of war stuff. I always right. envied kids. I would always see kids that have these huge like setups of army men, like in different battles and then, you know, across their whole floor and they'd have little tanks and everything with them. And some would have been knocked down and others would be, you know, like over here and there'd be a Jeep on its side. And like, oh, I always loved that stuff. But I just, when it came to me, I always sort of gravitated more toward like the plastic dinosaurs and cars whoa that's so weird see dan we're right now we're we've we've come to it we've come to the crossroads because i spent probably one quarter of my entire childhood playing with army men and mostly by myself Mm -hmm. whereas plastic dinosaurs i i used them only as like things to melt down to make uh, (laughs) obstacles for my army men 
Yeah. Like I had, I had uh, quite a few of the, I mean, I had every kind of half track and tank and, and Jeep and every style of army man. And then I, at some point for Christmas in probably, I don't know, 78, um, I got the Navarone playset, the um, Guns of Navarone. And if you look up Guns of Navarone playset, you will see that it is a five story. <laughs> oh my mount- God. <laughs> I, I knew kids who had this. Yeah. Five story mountain with an, uh, with an elevator and uh, howitzers yeah. and stairs. And it was, you know, based on the movie, uh, the guns of Navarone, which was a great spy film followed up by force 10 from Navarone starring Harrison Ford, Mm. an early Harrison Ford, uh, which was another great sort of, you know, special forces style world war two movie. But the guns of Navarone playset used to, used to live right at the top of the stairs at my dad's house. And I would sit, you know, kind of laying on the stairs, which is a thing I miss so much. Like I keep waiting for my daughter to like do that thing where you're playing at the top of the stairs, but you're like kind of laying down the stairs and then the top of the stairs and the few three steps below it are kind of your play area. Mm -hmm. I spent hours and hours on the stairs and the Navarone was at the top. And that was always, of course, the Germans and we were assaulting the Germans with some kind of, uh, you know, planned, coordinated assault. And uh, my imagination would carry me so far away that you could stand, you could stand tapping my foot and yelling at me, and I would not respond because I would be a thousand miles away. And every once in a while, one of those big, sort of Japanese robot toys would enter into the story because someone would give me one for Christmas or something. And for the most part, they just, you know, they went in the toy box, but every once in a while they would make an appearance as a dastardly third super weapon. Right. To be defeated by American ingenuity. But like what they actually represented what their, what their world was. I had no idea. Right. But, uh, my like footlocker of army men. I'm so sad. I don't have that now. I would play with them still. I would sit at the top of the stairs and play with those little army men still for big good for all the fun that I had. I really do miss laying on the stairs. I've tried it a couple of times. It's just not the same. I take up the entire stairway now where, you know, before you could kind of, you know what I mean? Like kind of curl up on the stairs. Sure. Well, you're, 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 you're big enough that you're laying across a couple of stairs, but small enough that you can still kind of pull your knees up and curl up across a couple of stairs. Yeah. Yeah. Guns of Navarone. There were a few other army man play sets that I didn't have that I envied, but, uh, but that was the one I got. And I have to say pretty good one. You know, you can buy these on eBay, Dan. I was just looking at that. What, what would happen if I bought a guns of Navarone? Oh, it would just end up in a, it's just a box just lay around. I think. I don't know. It'd be pretty fun. 
I, you know, my little, uh, my little painted set of all the U.S. presidents might factor in somehow. They're a little bit bigger. My dad would come back from Europe sometimes, and he would bring me proper toy soldiers, like tin soldiers. Oh, like would they be painted, or would you paint them? They were painted, and they were British soldiers from the Boer Wars or oh, wow. something. You know, like they were not contemporary army men. They were, they were cos, they were redcoats. And my dad would present me with these, these sets of, of tin soldiers. And I was always very confused by them. And I felt guilty because he'd brought me these, these expensive presents that ostensibly would appeal to me. But I kind of just was like, Oh, thanks. Redcoats, huh? Right. Because they didn't, they didn't fit into your. No timeline wise. And you know, and I, every once in a while, I guess I would come up with some time travel narrative where one army man went back to redcoat times, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to sustain my attention. And I couldn't, I wasn't a kid that, that using his imagination could wipe away the fact that they were made out of tin instead of plastic and also painted in red jackets. Mm -hmm. Like I suppose there are kids that don't care about historical continuity. (laughs) But you were not one of them. (laughs) Yeah. That's a, it's just a bunch of little guys fighting. Right. But no, it's clear. Like (laughs) if one of the Germans betrayed his fellow Germans and went over to the American side, Yes, it was clear because he was gray colored. Oh, right, right, right. So, yeah, the and now I think I think having those little tin soldiers would also be cool, but again, they would just be display items in my house. Remember that scene in Ronan where the where the idea of a Ronan is introduced? Yeah. Uh because uh he is our our hero Robert De Niro, De Niro is yeah. is sick and uh, or, or injured, and he's taken to the house of the sort of uh, what what character would you call him? The he's one of the mysterious French spy. Was he uh, the was it the sniper? Characters. No, no, he's the he was played by an actor who is in a lot of films. Um, he's, he's, he, uh, it's, it's Michael Lonsdale who also is in the movie, uh, Munich also playing a sort of French spy master in, in Ronan. It's not clear exactly why, who he is, but he's some sort of retired, uh, something where they take, they take Robert De Niro there to be bandaged and brought back to life. Right. And he's and like the, the dot, like the doctor. Yeah. And Michael Lonsdale is there and he's painting. Yeah, he's buried. Re- he's got the big magnifying glass with the light. Yeah. And, and he's, he's gazing through the light, paint, painting the little, he's making a little scene. Yeah. Of Ronan. Yeah. And then he patiently explains in his very appealing French accent about the, about what are, what Ronan's would do. 
And that is, that connects us to, that's why the movie is called Ronan. That it connects us to that, that story. And I guess Robert De Niro is meant to think long and hard about it. And the idea that in a lot of spy movies, there's always some eccentric somewhere high up in the spy organization. There's some sort of eccentric character who does these esoteric things or is like a, like a full on kook. And I've always admired those kooks because the message is that like being a, a spy, being a being in, involved in intelligence gathering is a kind of meritocracy, at least insofar as everybody that's in the CIA or the MI6 went to either Yale or Oxford. So it's not really like open to everybody. But within that culture, if you are a total cuckoo wawa, mm-hmm. you can find, you can actually be kind of high up in the organization because your talents are what are needed. You know, like your perceptiveness or your patient weirdness is actually how we unravel the spy craft of the other side. But that scene in Ronan is, yeah, here's this, here's this oddball, but in his retirement, he is contented by his little painting little figurines and creating a diorama of a like a static diorama of some ancient Japanese battle I remember when that I've seen that movie a few times and uh, whenever it comes by I'm always like could I could I be eccentric in that way I don't think I could I think I would be I, I, I recognize it as a metaphor for a kind of meditative peace. You're out of the game now. Death does not interest you, but yeah. or action doesn't interest you, and now you're just here in your sort of dark place building train sets. I don't think I could ever be that kind of eccentric, but I admire them, you know. <laughs> 